Good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. RNZ National, Chris Clark and Jenny Morton with me. Uh, a lot of response regarding whether or not we are the overwhelmed generation. Uh, the challenge, And also to uh, how you're feeling. Uh, the challenge in today's society, says one, is that it's hard to take a break from all the negativity in the world. Social media bombards us continually about the pandemic. And then on top of that, the occupation of Wellington and now Ukraine. This is with us 24-7. Frank says... I was at primary school in Dublin at the time of the Cold War stuff in the early 60s, and I remember my parents receiving civil defence material in the mail telling us what to do about protecting ourselves from a nuclear fallout. We were told to put tape on the windows, and I'm sure they showed us the ways to cover the dining table with blankets and sit underneath the table to protect from fallout from a nuclear cloud. Another one says, yes, I was 15, and there was massive fear of what was going to happen regarding Cuba. Seven past four, President Vladimir Putin ordered Russian nuclear forces to be placed on high alert Monday New Zealand time in response to what he calls aggressive statements by leading NATO powers. It's a dramatic escalation of east-west tensions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Russian nuclear expert Pavel Podvig said, quote, the consequences will be such as you have never seen in your entire history. This all makes me nervous, unquote. Thousands of Ukrainian civilians, mainly women and children, were fleeing from the Russian assault into neighbouring countries. More than 300 Ukrainian civilians have reportedly been killed so far during Russia's invasion. With us is Associate Professor James Headley from the Department of Politics at Otago University, whose expertise is around the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. James, kia ora. Kia ora. Russian nuclear forces to be placed on a high alert... On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being extremely worried, how concerned are you? How concerned should we be? Um, I'd probably say maybe about 7. <laughs> it's hard to tell. It's a bit like the doomsday clock. That's quite just, high. That's yeah, quite just high. From those, just from those emails you said, I mean, I, it does take me back to the... I grew up in London in the 1980s, and I remember a, a, a siren going off that probably was a, a air raid siren. And, uh, you know, we really thought that maybe was time. So, yeah... Um, it's definitely ratcheting um, Putin again, ratcheting up the uh, the rhetoric here. When did this sort of superpower nuclear escalation last have happen? Would it have been the Cuban missile crisis? And people are actually uh, sending their uh, their memory of that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the time that, that there was a clear crisis which was in danger of escalating to that. There was, and I mean, in the 1980s, there was a bit more sort of wider tension, so no kind of specific one, except that there, there was an accident, almost accidental triggering uh, in 1983, and thankfully the person in charge in the Soviet Union of the forces realised that it was a, a false alarm. Um, but yeah, I can see why people are kind of harking back to, to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, of course, Russia has an estimated 6,000 nuclear weapons. It is the largest arsenal in the world. Um, the U.S. has around 5,500. Um, what is the, is, the, is, the, is the nuclear threat just that? Is it seen as a bit of a standoff or um, a, bit of a, yeah, a bit of a bully boy threat, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, and that's hopefully how, how we'd be right to interpret it. Um, the actual kind of phrasing he used was that it was in response to aggressive statements from NATO leaders. Um, so, again, it's reinforcing that, that, that um, comment that he made 
in his speech last week when he said that if any NATO countries intervened, then they would uh, face unimaginable consequences that they've never seen before, which was a nuclear threat. So it's kind of reinforcing that, I suppose. It's not kind of putting, it's not like a second to pressing the button. So it is uh, kind of ratcheting up, but uh, it's nowhere near that sort of uh, level. But what he's doing is, I think, sending that signal, saying if you do intervene, um, then then all, all bets are off. Um, but um, I think there's two, well, there's several concerns. One is that, you know, you can always have sort of accidental misunderstandings in these sort of crises. Uh, another is the degree to which Putin still is rational, and particularly if the war isn't going the, the, the way he wants, whether um, he may kind of uh, seek to lash out. And I think the other is what counts as intervention. I think that's one of the kind of real troubling questions. Um, so NATO... Uh, US, the U.S. leader, for example, saying very clearly that uh, they won't put troops on the ground fighting with Ukraine, but they will supply, supply at least defensive weapons. Um, and there's these, to me, quite impressive array of sanctions being put in place now. Um, so to what degree Putin interprets that as, as a challenge to what he's trying to do? Uh, and, and particularly as... Um, he doesn't seem to have been as quickly successful as he might have expected in conquering Ukraine. Hey, I'm just jumping in here. Some news coming uh, just ahead. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has announced that from this Wednesday, those arriving from Australia will no longer have to isolate for seven days. So we'll come to that story in uh, a few minutes' time. Uh, but let's bring in our panel. They might have some thoughts, even questions on this particular and very sobering issue uh, that's happening uh, in uh, Europe. Jenny Morton. It is, I've got to say, really quite scary. And the thing is that a few weeks ago, everyone was saying, well, you know, will Putin invade um, the Ukraine or not? And saying that it was all political rhetoric and he was really just trying to make a point. And then he's gone and done it. And so the scary thing is, is he just trying to make a point now or is he mad enough to, to actually do this? And, you know, it's the thing is that Ukraine and Russia are like right next to each other. So he's not going to actually put just the Ukrainian people's lives. Gosh, that was a Freudian slip, wasn't it? At risk. He's also he's also going to put his own country at risk. And it's just unbelievable. I actually find it really hard to believe that we're here where we are today and those poor people in the Ukraine. James? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm still in a state of shock. I mean, it really is shock. It is like a death or something. That that sense of, um, yeah, sickness to the stomach and so on. Um, and again, I mean, until last week, I kind of agree. And I think even previous aggressions by Russia, say, seizing Crimea or in eastern Ukraine, could still be seen as sort of limited, rational and I wouldn't say justified, but at least could kind of present some sort of argument and logic behind them. But this is an outright aggression. And I've, I've kind of watched Putin's speeches. I've also kind of been reading some of the kind of pro-Kremlin media. And the rhetoric about this is about reuniting the Russian nation, so denying the idea of Ukrainian nationhood or independent statehood and kind of forcibly reuniting it and reestablishing the true Russia of a wider expanse. Um, this, this really is um, a, a very serious threat and it goes way beyond what we've seen before. I mean, let's hope that the nuclear threat issue is, is just posturing. Um, of course, there is still the deterrent. <laughs> so let's hope that the rationality of the deterrent um, uh, prevails. All right, Chris. 
Well, a question for James. James, to what extent do you think that uh, Putin's actions, even threatening the nuclear deterrent, uh, or nuclear option at least, might actually embolden other sort of despots? What I'm thinking here is, say, North Korea, um, who often tend to use uh, distraction, where the world's distracted to sort of rattle their sabers as well. Uh, China, Taiwan. Is there a risk of either copycat action or at least these kind of conflicts raging across more than just one theatre? Well, I think so. And no, I think particularly the, the, the question of China. Um, I was reading something the other day that said that, that that's always been the concern with the nuclear, with nuclear power, with nuclear weapons, that um, there is no way to, to resist the use of force by a state which has a massive nuclear arsenal or even a smaller one, to be honest. Um, so you can't respond. You can't respond with force in the way that, um, uh, of course, uh, w- w- happened in the Second World War. Um, so it's um, it's in some ways perhaps a relief that something like this has never happened before. But now we're, we're, we're seeing that kind of that dilemma, that problem in reality now. So you, uh, you in terms of uh, one to ten, uh, ten being very worried about the situation, you placing it a seven. Uh, I guess the hard thing for many of us listening to this right now around the world, we're racking our brains on what the next mm. month or mm. so actually looks like with this. Any mm. thoughts as to what that might be? No, I've been very worried to predict anything on this, but no. I do think that. Putin's so invested in this and the domestic situation, you know, his, his kind of appeal to the Russian people is, is so profoundly linked to this that it's very hard to see any kind of potential backing down. But also from the Ukrainian side, barring a full, full-on defeat, how um, they could accept any of uh, Russia's full-on demands. It may well be that we'd get drawn into a kind of long-drawn-out conflict as uh, happened uh, in in the Balkans, for example, uh, or perhaps the Russian conquest will succeed. But then I think in the long term, the lessons of history are always that that you just cannot control a population that don't want to be part of your state. Uh, and that's what he's trying to do. And, and what that probably means in the long term is that potentially this could be reversed. But uh, But I really wouldn't want to make a prediction for the next month. No. Good to have you on the programme, James Kiora. That is Associate Professor James Headley, who's been following this very closely, uh, being an expert in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. He's at the Politics Department at Otago University there, but nonetheless, uh, Ginny, it's, um, as you said right back to you, I've been thinking, it is really overwhelming times, isn't it? As you can hear right there. It's really overwhelming. Yep, Mm. yep. 17 past four, the panel uh, news just out coming through. The Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has announced that from this Wednesday, those arriving from Australia will no longer have to isolate for seven days. And those arriving into the country will still need to have a rapid antigen test on the day they arrive and on days five to six. All positive rapid antigen tests or RATs must be followed up with a PCR test so that any new strains can be detected. A pre-departure test will also remain a requirement. The Prime Minister has announced that New Zealanders from anywhere in the world will be able to arrive on Friday, just over a week earlier than planned, and they will also be able to forego seven days of self-isolation. So a bit of welcome news there for those who want to come back or haven't seen their loved ones for a long time. Also caught my eye 
It's a bit of an issue as well. New Zealanders are questioning the need to scan QR codes in Phase 3. Many have asked, at what point are we past scanning? Do we need to scan now, considering the rates of infection now in their thousands, many thousands? It's still mandatory for businesses to display QR codes and for the public to scan in. But it is true that scanning has dropped off considerably. And also today is the, first, is the anniversary of New Zealand's first COVID case. On the 28th of February 2020, the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Aotearoa, a person in their 60s who had recently returned from Iran. With us is Dr. Andrew Chen, a research fellow with Koitu, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland. Dr. Chen, kia ora, welcome. Kia ora, Wallace. Yeah, first of the news that just come out, uh, if you can cast your eye over there, anything uh, of note there um, from this Wednesday, those arriving from Australia will no longer have to isolate for seven days. Um, thoughts there, fair enough, uh, about time? Yeah, I think given the risk of COVID already existing in the community, it probably does make quite a bit of sense. Um, I think for people who are worried about this uh, change and um, the potential for there being more COVID being brought in the country. Uh, really, you know, we just have to be keeping up the same sorts of uh, risk mitigation behaviours that have been well drilled into us over the last two years. Um, and we can see at the moment in the statistics that um, there has been a drop in mobility, that people just aren't, in, aren't out and about as much as they were. Yeah. Um, and that's you know a reflection of people being worried about um, the virus. Yes. Now scanning, because for so many of us, it's and we've talked about this you know for two years, haven't we? Or almost. Mm. It's built into a muscle memory that whenever you go near a door, you reach for your phone. And in fact, I had a discussion with someone else. Someone just said, "Ah, oh, do, do we need to scan in?" And yeah, well, yeah, it's you know still still a thing. But do we still need to? Mm. Yeah, I can understand that people saying, well, the Ministry of Health isn't publishing locations of interest anymore. There's no point scanning in. I, I get where they're coming from. Um, but I have two really key reasons for why it is still helpful to scan in. One is that if you test positive for COVID-19, um, you will be asked to fill out a form that talks about where you have been and when. Um, and it's a lot easier to do that if you've been scanning in because you can just upload your diary. Contact tracers may not be publishing locations of interest, but they'll still be using that data to look for patterns and figure out where people are getting infected. The second reason is that when we get to the other side of this Omicron wave, we will likely need to return to using these tools. And um, when we're trying to stamp oh. out the last parts of the virus, you know, we will probably go back to using these um, digital contact tracing tools. And it's a lot easier for people to keep the habit going than to stop and have to pick it up again in, say, four weeks or six weeks' time. So if you can do it, it's probably good to keep doing it. If it is you know, cognitively difficult because you're overwhelmed and this is the thing that will make the difference, then I'm not going to get, you know, I'm not going to judge people for not scanning. Right. Okay. Interesting. All right. Jenny Morton. I think that is really interesting because when I read this, I did think, actually, why are we scanning in? I will say that anecdotally, I have heard over the last few weeks that people weren't scanning in because they didn't want to be notified if they had been somewhere that was going to force them to self-isolate. So people were actually choosing not to scan because they felt that if nobody knew they'd been there, then they wouldn't have to self-isolate if there was a case. But clearly we've gone past that now and, and you know, you only really have to self-isolate if you've um, actually got COVID. 
But uh, that's re- I think that's really interesting and really useful information to have because I think a lot of people are questioning the need to scan. Yeah, Chris? Sorry, Andrew wants to respond to that, Andrew. Yeah. Sorry, if I can just jump in there. Um, yeah, I mean, now you only have to self-isolate if you are household contact, so um, it's not just if you have COVID. But I think also to the people who are sort of saying, well, I don't want to scan in because I don't want to have to isolate, that only works if you don't get COVID. Um, and really, you know, you're, you're just making a decision there to um, not give yourself information that would allow you to mitigate your own risk. Um, so, you know, uh, to me, I would always scan in. I would want to know if I was a close contact. But, um, yeah, each to their own. Mm. Chris? Well, I just really to add that uh, I know I'm among a number of our friends that they used to be very, very religious about scanning in and have dropped off very much the last few weeks, uh, partly because of fear of becoming a casual contact. I think that's now changed, obviously, with the new definition. But I wonder if at the very least we need to make sure that people are scanning into high-risk environments. I'm thinking of rest homes. I'm thinking of hospitals, those kind of places where, um, you know, we're COVID to spread or we're people to catch COVID visiting there. The implications would be absolutely profound. So, yeah, I think keep the muscle memory going. It sounds like we're going to need it for quite a while yet. Indeed, and isn't that what Dr. Michael Baker said too, uh, Andrew, that, uh, look, if you sitting on the fence about scanning and make sure that you do in areas of vulnerability or where those are very particularly vulnerable. Yeah, uh, if you are going to only scan in in some places, then make sure that it's the high-risk places you are scanning in. But also at the same time, I would say let the contact tracers identify and decide right. what is high-risk um, rather than you know every armchair epidemiologist <laughs> deciding what is high-risk. Um, and, you know, if you're already scanning in some places, how hard is it really to scan everywhere else, you know? Like, just just keep doing it. So um, I, I find the argument of, okay, I'll just scan in at hospitals or high-risk locations to be a little bit disingenuous because it tells me that there's another reason why you probably don't want to scan in. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and you've got to have it now, don't you? Yes. I mean, how hard is it really to um, uh, type in your password, open your phone and uh, scan before you go anywhere? Indeed. Uh, before uh, you go, Dr. Chen, can I ask you this? Um, so uh, two years on from our first case, uh, the 28th of Feb, 2020, the first case confirmed in New Zealand. Your thoughts, should we be proud of our response in New Zealand? Should we do a could do better? What sort of a report card does New Zealand get? Yeah, we've learned a lot in two years. That's my key takeaway is that, you know, there's so much about this pandemic that um, could not have been predicted are things that we didn't know about. Um, This whole area that I've been working in, which is digital contact tracing and the NZ COVID Tracer app, none of that existed before the pandemic. Um, And, you know, so we've learned a lot over that time. Um, And I think the easiest way to score our performance is to look internationally um, we've certainly done a lot better than a lot of the countries we would normally compare ourselves to. Um, and so from that perspective, uh, you know, scorecard, A+. Plus. A+, plus? New Zealand A+. Plus? Uh, as best as we could have done, I think. Um, you know, no, no, no one's going to have done it perfectly. Um, and, yeah, I think, you know, compared to uh, the countries that we look at and take inspiration from normally, um, we've done pretty well. Extraordinary. Very good to have you on the programme. Uh, kia ora, Dr Andrew Chen there, who is a research fellow with COI2, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, and he gives uh, New Zealand a report card of A+, two years on from our first case. Um, when you, um, 
You can't really do much better than that, Chris, if you get, I'm just thinking back to my sixth form report where I got, what did I get, the average of C minus? Um, you know, A plus pretty good, right? Yeah, I don't recall seeing an A plus on any of my grades. But, no, same. No, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fair comment because, you know, you go right back to the beginning two years ago, uh, which seems a lifetime ago. It's only 730 it? days. Oh, there, there was no rule book. No one had actually come up with a plan for how you manage a COVID pandemic. They had to make it up on the spot. And what I think is extraordinary is, is the quality of leadership right through the whole system. I mean, the Prime Minister obviously has to take some credit for that, similarly Ashley Bloomfield, but it wasn't just a cast of two. You know, you've got some very smart scientific advisors. You know, we now know what an epidemiologist is, for example. You know, the modellers talking us through the science there. But right down to at local level, I was in a shop the other day where a shop assistant somewhat tremulously asked me to produce my vaccine certificate before I bought something. I thought that's kind of cool that that leadership has been distributed right throughout the whole country. So, uh, an A-plus is a pretty high grade, but, yep, when you look at the mortality figures, when you look at the morbidity figures, we've done remarkably well compared to other parts of the world. Rain has just texted me, Aotearoa is the only country to have increased its life expectancy in the last two years, which, in fact, is correct. Uh, Michael Baker did say, and I've got a quote here, in fact, life expectancy in New Zealand has actually risen by 8 months during the course of the pandemic, the highest improvement in the world. And the reason is we're so good now at preventing transmission of these respiratory viruses. Many people have will have very different responses to that. For example, people who are protesting, people who might have uh, lost their businesses, people who are really struggling financially. There will be, a, uh, of course, uh, a myriad of responses. But I want to ask Eugenie Morton, when we go right back to uh, late January of 2020, and we hear this about this virus coming out of China. Did you think that you'd be on the radio two years later, still amidst it, still amongst it? Oh, look, I must admit that I was very naive at that time about what it would mean. I couldn't believe, you know, people were saying, oh, the world will close down. Um, I was hearing this from some people through my work that, you know, the world will close down. Um, borders will be closed. And then when they close the borders, I was like, well, it'll be six months and then it'll all be over. So, you know, it, as time has gone by, I've, I've learned that um, there's no definites in this time. And yeah, mm. I, in, in two years, two years seems to have flown by, but it also seems to be that we've been in this um, in this position for a very long time. And we do tend to say, oh, last year during lockdown, when we actually mean the first lockdown in 2020, it's you know, it's quite hard to believe how much time has gone by. Hasn't it? 24 months, gosh. Uh, 29 past four. Oh, big response regarding uh, whether or not you think our uh, pandemic response is A+, plus, as Dr. Andrew Chen gave it, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine. Um, definitely A+, plus for New Zealand's COVID response. Uh, Paul says, though, A+, plus, my buttocks. Um, another one here. Uh it says another word, but I'm not going to say it on the radio. Uh, definitely an A+. Plus. Jacinda and the government has done a remarkable job, simply remarkable. Uh, and um, for goodness sake, Wallace, we won't know until 2023 whether we have done well. Here on the panel, uh, NZ National, Jenny Morton uh, and Chris Clark with me this afternoon. Lots to discuss, including whether it is whether we live in the age of slippers, whether or not it's right and uh, proper to be able to now wear your slippers to the supermarket.